We've been marching our way through the book of First Samuel, and um, this has been my first time actually. I mean, I've read through First Samuel before, um, but this is my first time actually teaching through it, and um, it's just been interesting because it's a mix of things. We see all these different characters and different events, and it's it's. It's not really focused on a particular individual. You know, you look at something like Joshua, and you see it's about Joshua and the Israelites marching into the land of Canaan, you know, and um, you think about the Exodus, and it's Moses and the Israelites going through the wilderness. And 1 Samuel is sort of a mix of things because it covers a lot of territory, and there's a lot of different characters. It starts out with, with you know, Elkanah and Hannah in the very beginning, and then it does a little bit with Eli, and then you have, you know, Saul being called, then you have it moving into David, and it's just kind of this mix of things which makes you wonder, you know, what's it all really really ultimately about, and I sort of started off this series saying that this book ultimately was going to re- reveal at least three principles or themes related to um, God and who he was, and it's ultimately a book about God, and it's about his redemptive plan and how this all fits into it. And today we're going to see that reflected again as we look at the anointing of David, a better king. If you remember the last couple of weeks here, we saw Israel's rejection of God um, and a demand for an earthly king. And it was basically a very worldly thing. They wanted a king just like every other nation. You know, they had enemies. Um, they had the Philistines that were, were on, their, um, on their edges, if you will, always sort of a threat. And part of that was because they hadn't obeyed the Lord and kicked out all the inhabitants of the land. Um, so there was this constant threat. And so they had this, this enemy always at their door. And yet God continued to protect them. But they got to a point where they wanted an earthly king. Because every other nation around them had their earthly king, somebody to deliver them, somebody to build a standing army. Israel didn't have a standing army. In fact, they couldn't have an army because the Philistines wouldn't let them have iron workers and blacksmiths. They couldn't make weapons. But even with that, God protected them, just like he did in the wilderness. So they were a little fearful, and so we saw them call for a king because they wanted it done their way. They wanted it done like every other nation, to have a powerful king and an established army. And... Um, that was ultimately a rejection of God and his kingship and his leadership. So, God gave him exactly what they asked for, which was this man named Saul. And we remember Saul was arrogant, proud, he was foolish, he was rash, he was self-serving, he was outright disobedient. We saw that last week. And so God rejected him and said that Saul, that God um, was sorry, if you will, or he grieved because he had made Saul king. And that was a reference to God grieving over the sin of Saul. But as God did that, he told David, or he told Saul that he was going to raise up another king, but this time it would be somebody after his heart, not somebody after Israel's heart, like the first king. So today we learn the identity of that individual, it's David, and um, we'll see how that sort of plays out. Let's look at uh, 1 Samuel chapter 16, just the first uh, few verses here, get to it. The first five verses, I'll read those for you. It says this, Now the Lord said to Samuel, How long will you grieve over Saul, since I have rejected him from being king over Israel? Fill your horn with oil and go. I will send you to Jesse the Bethlehemite, for I have selected a king for myself among his sons. But Samuel said, How can I go? When Saul hears of it, he will kill me. And the Lord said, Take a heifer with you and say, I have come to sacrifice to the Lord. You shall invite Jesse to the sacrifice, and I will show him what you shall do, and you shall anoint for me the one whom I designate for you. So Samuel did what the Lord said and came to Bethlehem. 
And the elders of the city came trembling to meet him and said, Do you come in peace? He said, I come in peace. I have come to sacrifice to the Lord. Consecrate yourselves and come with me to the sacrifice. He also consecrated Jesse and his sons and invited them to the sacrifice. I'm going to title this section here, The Lord Selects a Better King. So our passage here begins with Samuel grieving, and the Lord offers him what I'm going to call just a mild admonishment, if you will. Um, Samuel's grieving over Saul. Doesn't say specifically why, but I would imagine he's grieving over his sin. He's grieving over the fact that God had established him, and because of Saul's rabid disobedience, um, things go kind of sideways. And so Samuel knows that God has rejected him. He's grieving over that, and the Lord says... How long are you going to grieve? How long are you going to do that? Haven't you seen that I rejected him? And so in some respects he's saying, Samuel, you've got to come in line with me and my plan here. It's time to stop grieving for Saul. You have to remember that he was the Lord's prophet, he was the priest, he was judge, he's supposed to be um, ultimately interested in God and being aligned with God's interests. And so it's a mild admonishment, there's no sin here on Samuel's part, he's doing exactly what a good prophet and priest and and um, shepherd, if you will, over Israel should do, grieve over the sin of their king. And But the Lord kind of wakes him up a little bit, it's time to stop grieving, he says. Back in... Uh, 1 Samuel 13, he had told Samuel already that he was going to select a new king. So this is probably nothing new to Samuel. He said he's going to select a king who is after his own heart. In fact, in chapter 15, he had already identified who that was. He didn't identify, but he had already selected the individual. It says, the Lord has torn the kingdom of Israel from you today and has given it to your neighbor, somebody who is better than you. So he had already told Saul that he had selected this individual. God knew who it was. He hadn't revealed it yet. But he does say that it would be a neighbor of Saul's, but also somebody who would be better, and I think that's key. The new king would be better because he would be a man after God's own heart. He wouldn't be a man after Israel's own heart. He wouldn't be a man or a king like every other nation, but instead would be a better king than Saul because he would reflect the interests of God and would have the kind of heart that God has. So the Lord sent Samuel on a mission to anoint this new king. He says, to fill your horn with oil, go. He said, I'll send you to Jesse, the Bethlehemite, for I've selected a king for myself among his sons. You know, at first here you notice that Samuel's a little bit reluctant to go. doesn't really say why, except that he feared that Saul would kill him. Probably because he knew the character of who Saul was. So he's a little bit afraid. But the Lord gives them a plan. He says, well, you can, you can go. Just take a sacrifice with you. They won't be any of the wiser there. Plus, we know that God will ultimately protect them. But you know what's interesting, too, is that when Samuel gets to the city, it says that the elders of the city were afraid. The only thing I can think of here is that um, they were either afraid of Samuel, maybe because of what he had done to King Agag. If you remember that episode where he hacked him in pieces? Or they may have been afraid because of what Samuel represented and knowing that Saul likely would want to kill Samuel and possibly kill him. In fact, we see some episodes a little bit later in the um, upcoming chapters here where when the priests offer some help to David, Saul goes in and slaughters all of them and he slaughters all the women and children. So it may have been that the elders of the city knew all of this. You know, Maybe Samuel's coming to judge us. Maybe Saul's going to judge us, but anyway, they were kind of freaked out a little bit. Um, but he gives them, 
he helps him a little bit by telling him, I come in peace, everything's cool. That's probably why I lean a little bit more towards maybe they were afraid of Samuel because they ask him, do you come in peace? You know, but again, it's um, the text isn't abundantly clear on, on all that's going on in their head, but they were concerned that Samuel's presence there might um, have some other intent other than peace. And so Samuel actually goes to Bethlehem and uh, prepares to do what the Lord has done. At this point, he still doesn't know who the person is. He doesn't know who this new king is, but he knows that's the reason he's going there. Let's look at verses uh, 6 through 11. When they entered, this is basically Jesse and his sons, when they entered, he looked at Eliab and thought, surely the Lord's anointed is before me. You can just see the lights come on. You know, the heavens open up now. Um, The angels start to sing, right? This man walks in, he's gorgeous. And uh, it's obviously the Lord's man, according to Samuel, or so we thought. Surely the Lord's anointed is before him. But the Lord said to Samuel, Do not look at his appearance or at the height of his stature, because I have rejected him. For God sees not as man sees, for man looks at the outward appearance, but the Lord looks at the heart. Then Jesse called Abinadab and made him pass before Samuel, and he said, The Lord has not chosen this one either. Next Jesse made Shammah pass by and said, The Lord has not chosen this one either. Thus Jesse made seven of his sons pass before Samuel. But Samuel said to Jesse, The Lord has not chosen these. And Samuel said to Jesse, Are these all the children? And he said, There remains yet the youngest, and behold, he's tending the sheep. Then Samuel said to Jesse, Send and bring him, for we will not sit down until he comes. And so you have this parade here, if you will. You have Jesse have his seven sons come come walking before. And the first one is the eldest, and he's a fine-looking individual. He's tall. He's probably a good-looking warrior. Um, And immediately Samuel thinks, well, that's got to be him. Because why not? That's what God did the first time, right? Remember Saul? He was heads and shoulders above everybody else. He's a good-looking guy. Um, And so surely this would be the one. But you notice what God says to him? God doesn't see as man sees. God's got a different standard here. And he's now going to lay out his standard for what a king actually should be. He says, don't look at his appearance or the height of his stature. Because I've rejected him. Now this isn't an ultimate rejection. It just simply means I've not chosen him as king. He says, Because God sees not as man sees, for man looks at the outward appearance, but the Lord looks at the heart. Isn't that really true of us? You know, when it comes to situations and circumstances, we're always looking at those things. You know, I'll be real frank, I'm a fixer, you know, and that's what I do for a living. And um, so, I always analyze things and figure out a way to fix it. And we like to do that, I think, even as people. You know, here we have a situation where a new king is needed, and so Samuel's thinking, well, obviously you need the biggest, strongest, brightest individual to be the king. Um, But God says, well, no, you can't look at the outward things. You have to look at the inward things. I think it's that way with us when it comes to just trials and difficulties that we face in life, you know. Oftentimes we're looking at the trial and analyzing the trial and trying to figure out a way to fix the trial. And we're not thinking about, well, wait a minute, what's behind this? What's the spiritual side of this? What else is going on here? You know, James tells us that trials are intended to um, establish us in our faith and build endurance. Which means we ought to be looking at that, not the trial itself, right? And so God says he doesn't look or concern himself so much with the outward appearance, what things look like on the outside, but rather the Lord looks at what's in the heart when it comes to the individual. 
And so that's his standard for a new king. So Samuel was not to be impressed with Eliab's height, the fact that he was a big man. Um, instead, he should be looking at the heart. I kind of wonder why, why God chose Saul knowing that. Do you ever wonder about that? We kind of touched base on that a little bit last week. You know, why would God set up Saul and then just take him down? According to 1 Samuel 9.2, Saul was a choice and handsome man. There was not a more handsome person than all the sons of Israel. From his shoulders on up, he was taller than any of the people. He was an impressive individual. I wonder if what God had done here is because Israel was screaming for a king like all the other nations, if God says, okay, I'm going to give you that kind of king, and he's going to serve as sort of an exclamation point. Because... He's not going to work out well for you because of your standard. This is what you want. You want the world's standard and a king. I'm going to give you that, and you're going to see it's not going to end well. And then I'm going to give you a king that's my kind of king, and they'll be able to see the contrast, maybe. I don't know. But I suspect that might very well be why God did what he did. Because Israel was a bit hard of hearing, and sometimes lessons need to be a little hard. You know, it's much like our own kids sometimes. Sometimes we have to let them sort of fail, right? Sometimes we have to let them learn the hard way because those lessons have a tendency to stick, don't they? Maybe that was God's plan here. But the Lord looks at the heart, and so that's what he's going to actually do here. Jesse presented six more of his sons, likely in the order of their um, oldest to the youngest, and makes their way through all of them. Jesse was done presenting his sons, never have considered presenting David, because David's a youth at this point. He's a shepherd. Jesse never thought to include him in the list, but Samuel has to ask, well... And, you know, Samuel's a pretty bright guy. You know, all these men have been paraded through. God says, I'm going to anoint one of his sons. And Samuel, being the intelligent man that he is, realizes, well, if all the sons have passed before me, there's got to be another son somewhere, because God said it would be one of his sons. And so he immediately begins to recognize there's got to be somebody else. He asks Jesse about it. Jesse reveals, yes, there's one more, the youngest. He's out in the field. And so Sammy says, okay, we're not going anywhere, doing anything until he shows up. At that point, I'm pretty confident that Samuel knew that was going to be the king. I doubt there were any more after that. He probably realized that. So what happens? Look at verses 12 and 13. So he sent and brought him in. Now he was a root, he was Rudy with beautiful eyes and a handsome appearance. I find that a bit ironic. You know? Don't look at his appearance, Samuel. But then he brings in this dude that's, you know, kind of got a reddish complexion, um, probably red hair, beautiful eyes, great complexion. Um, a bit ironic, until you realize that what God's emphasis was above, where he says don't look at his appearance, meant don't look at his stature, the fact that he's a strong, tall, big, warrior-looking kind of a guy. You know, so the, it's not that God says, you've got to pick an ugly guy to be your king. But David happens to be a fairly good-looking guy, probably much smaller than what Saul was. So he brings him in, he sees him. And the Lord says to Samuel in verse 12, Arise, anoint him, for this is he. So Samuel took the horn of oil and anointed him in the midst of his brothers, And the Spirit of the Lord came mightily upon David from that day forward, and Samuel arose and went to Ramah. What we find here in this passage is kind of interesting, because 
everything in this text indicates that this is God's selection. In fact, there's words that are used in the text that indicate that this is all about God selecting. It was all his purpose. But there's something else interesting in the, in the text here. We'll, we'll touch base again on that in a few minutes here. But um, there's something else interesting in the text here. You notice it says that the Spirit of the Lord came mightily upon David. But there's something else that's said there. Because that happened to Saul as well. You remember? The Spirit came upon Saul. It said that God changed his heart. He went out and he prophesied. You know, he spoke the words of God. Well, it says the same thing here, that the Spirit of the Lord came mightily upon David, but it adds another phrase. Do you see what that phrase is? What's the next phrase? From that day on. What happened to Saul with the Spirit? Do you remember? It says the Spirit left him. And Saul was aware of that. As far as I know, that's the only time in the Bible where it specifically states that the, that the Spirit had departed from somebody was with Saul. Now, what we have to understand about this is the Old Testament, when you have the Spirit coming upon somebody, um, you have to think of it more in terms of enablement, not indwelling. Does that make sense? The difference between what happened to, say, David and what happens to us is we have the indwelling of the Holy Spirit. Peter says that we become partakers of the divine nature. The Holy Spirit indwells us. We become the temple. In the Old Testament, the temple where God resided was the tabernacle or then the temple. Okay, And His Spirit would come upon people and enable them. But it wasn't a permanent thing in the sense that it would indwell them, change them, make them a new creature, a new creation in Christ like what we experience today. That's something that changed with the Gospel. With the Old Testament, there was an expectation that as long as you were faithful and loyal, God's Holy Spirit would continue to rest upon you and enable you. And the difference between, say, David and Saul was Saul continued to reject that, and the Spirit therefore rejected him and departed from him. But it tells us here that in David's case, it would be forever. And that's likely because of David's character, who he was. He was a man after God's own heart. And for that reason, the Spirit of God enabled him, rested upon him, if you will for the rest of his life. What I find striking about that is that's even the case when David sinned against Bathsheba, or sinned against Bathsheba's husband and then took Bathsheba as his wife. And why is that? Because even in that event, we see the way David responds to Nathan the prophet when he confronts him on his sin. Saul, whenever he was confronted, we saw, you know, just this this arrogant, boastful, prideful, you know, it's all about me, you know, he tells Samuel, well, let's go back with me so that I'm not embarrassed in front of these people, you know. It has nothing to do with the fact that, it, that he's been sinning. David, on the other hand, um, almost goes to pieces when he's confronted with his sin. Pours out his heart back to the Lord. You read his Psalms and you realize that David says, you've got every right to take my life. Every right to take my life. And for that reason, the Spirit of God stayed in David for all of his life. And so we see that stark contrast here that this king, David, will be a man after my own heart and the spirit will rest on him forever. Quite the opposite of Saul. I'm not going to go through much more text than that this morning, but what I want to do now is I want to sort of get our hands around what we can learn from this text itself. What, 
what's going on? I think there's two primary themes in our passage today, if you will. The first theme is found in the very first verse. And it comes with this word selected or chosen. I think the NIV uses the word chosen. Go back to just verse 1. It says, Now the Lord said to Samuel, How long will you grieve over Saul, since I have rejected him from being king over Israel? Fill your horn with oil. I will send to you Jesse the Bethlehemite, for I have, and it says in the English text, selected or chosen a king for myself among the sons. The word that's actually used there is more the idea of seeing. I've seen among. Um, it's this idea that God is intimately involved in perceiving and looking, and he, at this point, he already sees within David a man after his own heart. And that's why most of the translations translated as more like a selected or a chosen, because this idea that God has looked down upon and seen in David somebody that reflects the kind of king that he wants over his people. And so he chooses them. But the word, because of that, is often translated as selected or chosen because it's almost this act of God. God looks and sees and takes and uses, if you will, David, for his purposes. And that word is actually used, I think, nine or ten times in this passage. And we know that with words repeating, they indicate something about the passage. And so what we find throughout this passage is that the Lord specifically singled out David as his act In the first instance with Saul, they come to him and they say, give, 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 give. And God says, okay, I'll give. And in some respects, he's a passive partner in that, if you will. This is totally the opposite. Where God is the one that steps in. I'm now going to do something. I'm now going to provide the king. And I'm going to provide the right kind of king. And it's a man that I've seen. And therefore I have selected. Because he's after my own heart. It says in verse 14 of chapter 13, he says, Now your kingdom shall not endure. This is Lord speaking to Saul. He says, The Lord, me, sought out for myself a man after my own heart. And the Lord has appointed him as ruler over his people. So you have, I have selected. It's the one whom I will designate. He says, I have rejected you. The Lord has not chosen this one. When he's talking about the sons of Jesse. I have not chosen these, he goes on and says. Then he tells Samuel, anoint David, for this is he. All of these words in the text, I think the author is trying to tell us, there is a sovereign act of God happening right now. This is all about the Lord and his work, choosing and selecting the kind of leader that he wants for Israel. He doesn't ask for input from the Israelites. He doesn't ask for input from Samuel. God knows exactly what he's doing and who he wants so it's a divine intent to establish a king after his own heart. I want you to turn to Psalm chapter going to read these words to you. This is a reflection on this king. Okay? Once you spoke in a vision to your godly ones, and you said, I have given help to the one who is mighty. I have exalted one chosen from the people. I have found David my servant. With my holy oil I have anointed him. 
with whom my hand will be established. My arm also will strengthen him. The enemy will not deceive him, nor the sons of wickedness afflict him. But I shall crush his adversaries before him and strike those who hate him. My faithfulness and my loving kindness will be with him. And in my name his horn will be exalted. I shall also set his hand on the sea and his right hand on the rivers. He will cry to me, You are my Father, my God, and the rock of my salvation. I have all, or I also shall make him my firstborn, the highest of the kings of the earth. My loving kindness I will keep for him forever. And my covenant shall be confirmed to him. So I will establish his descendants forever in his throne as the days of heaven. It's all about God's choice and selection of a king. And so we have this divine, sovereign act of God in selecting David. And it tied to that specifically is God wants somebody that reflects him. Somebody that is a man after his own heart. And again, we have this contrast between Saul and who Saul was and who David ultimately will become. And we'll see that as we go through some of the stories around David. One of my favorite um, scenes is when David is fleeing from Saul. At one point, he um, escapes. He separates from Jonathan. It's probably it's the he'll only see Jonathan one more time in his life, and so he's he's on the run, takes no food, no weapons with him, and he ends up in a city called Nob, which is a small Levite priestly city, about 85, 90 priests or so. No, 85 priests. Um, David gets there, and that's where you hear of the sh- David eating the showbread. Um, Jesus talks about that thing in Matthew, or in Mark, I'm sorry, um, where David is hungry and so he gets this showbread. Well, there happens to be an individual there in the city that sees David come in and he happens to be one of the shepherds from Saul. And that guy goes back and tells Saul that the priest helped David and his men out. And so as a result, Saul goes and slaughters all the priests, 85 priests. One son of the priest escapes, goes in and kills the women, the children, just wipes out the city. And when that one priest escapes and makes his way to David, David looks at that and says, man, I knew when I saw Dag there that he was going to go back and tell Saul, this is on me. He takes the blame and the responsibility for Saul murdering all these priests. And you see this heart of David, he's just it breaks and he takes responsibility for something he didn't do. Just knowing my presence there, the fact that I went there to get help, led to the slaughter of these innocent people. And David just takes it all to heart and there's, there's remorse for something he didn't do. It reflects the kind of king that David would be and the kind of heart. And that's exactly what God was looking for. And so the first thing or theme that I think we can pull out of this text today is we have to look at this in light of God doing this amazing thing for Israel. They had rejected him. They had rebelled against him. They wanted this king. This king was a horrible king. And yet God still says, okay, I'm now going to give you a king that represents me. God didn't have to do that. He could have just said, you know what, forget you guys. You know, you wanted a guy like Saul, fine. You get to deal with a guy like Saul. But he didn't. He says, I'm going to fix this now. I'm going to give you a king after my own heart. And we see that reflected in David. And again, the author, because of the way he uses some of these words, repeating the same words over and over, I've seen, I've selected. It's all about God doing his will for Israel. Um, It's all about his sovereignty. Um, Doesn't he do that with us? I mean, there are times we just kind of want to do our own things, and God can easily say, fine, do your own thing. Let's see how that works out well for you. 
And yet he still is gracious and kind and sometimes through his act of sovereignty steps in and sort of fixes it for us. Just sort of does that for us. And he does it his way. Maybe not our way. I've got a friend of mine, I shouldn't say friend, an acquaintance, that, um, you know, we homeschool our kids. And, and years ago, back in the, back in the 80s, um, homeschooling had a terrible reputation. And part of it was because many of the homeschooling families, um, I'll, I'll say were shelterous. You know, they were just cloister and shelter. And, and there's a certain amount of that in homeschooling because your kids are at home and not exposed to the same thing that everybody else is. But, but um, what's interesting, back in the 80s, was that many of the homeschool families literally would shelter and sort of, not all of them, but um, had developed this reputation. For instance, we had a, a group of families at our church um, who would only hang out with other homeschool families. There was no association, and their children would not hang out with other children, only with other homeschool children. And it became quite divisive, sort of within our um, within our community, if you will, of that the church within the body of the church, because some of the regular families, I'll call them, um, would get offended because their kids at church functions could not fellowship with the homeschool kids because the parents of those homeschool kids said, "No, no, 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 that doesn't happen." You know, you're not treating your kids right or raising your kids right. And, and I knew a number of these families. And one of them happened to be a doctor. And um, what was interesting is at one point he had taken and moved out into the country with his family. And as we were talking, he said, I just need to separate my family from not just the world, but other families at the church because even the church kids aren't a good influence on my kids and even the adults are not a good influence on us. So we're moving out to the country and it was just him and his family. They moved out to the country to shelter themselves, be totally by themselves. And what was interesting is about six months later, they started showing back up at church again. So I pulled him aside and said, so what, what's going on? And he said, well, he goes, God gave me a good swift kick in the pants. And I'm like, well, what do you mean? He's like, well, here's the deal. And he began to explain they, had, they couldn't sell their house but they went ahead and moved out in the country because they were convinced that it was God's will and it was their way and all these other homeschool families that were moving out to the country and stuff, you know. And he kind of explained that it nearly, he was a doctor, nearly devastated them financially. And he said, I fi- it finally dawned on me that God had a different plan for my life and it was a much better plan. And that plan includes fellowship with believers. And he said, in my head, I thought that I should separate and to go out to the wilderness, you know. And he said, but God had a totally different plan. He said, I saw God's sovereign hand <laughs> in rescuing me before we were completely devastated. And he said it was fairly close to where they would have financially lost everything because of the two homes and some of the other stuff going on. But there was a, he specifically described it as this divine act of God saying, okay, you had it your way for a little bit but I'm now going to rescue you and through divine acts. And he shared some of these things, like how it worked out, where he's like, that was totally God. I fought it even when I saw God doing it. I tried to buck it, but God still in his sovereignty did exactly what had to happen for me and for my benefit. And I think that's what we kind of see here in Israel with God. Um, They wanted Saul. They got Saul, but now God is going to give them David, somebody after his own heart. And again, it's clear in the text that it's a divine act the author repeats certain words over and over and over. The second theme, I think, is found in the word heart. And we've hammered that home a little bit today. (laughs) When God rejected Saul, he told him why he rejected him and said, I want a man after my own heart. It's repeated throughout the passage. Um, 
Samuel's told not to look at the appearance, but God looks at the heart. So what does it actually mean? What does it actually mean to have a heart after God? Paul spells it out for us in Acts chapter 13. Why don't you turn there with me? Acts chapter 13. Just look down at verse, oh, I think we're at about 22. He's kind of going through this history of Israel, David is, or Saul, uh, Paul is. And he talks about, in verse 20, he says, And these things he gave them, judges until Samuel the prophet. Then they asked for a king, and God gave them Saul, the son of Kish, a man of the tribe of Benjamin, for 40 years. After he had removed him, He raised up David to be their king, concerning whom he also testified and said, I have found David. Remember, it's interesting there, the word found, because remember, the the text that we read today says that he selected or chosen in the English, but the word actually says, see, he saw David. Well, here he says, I found David. Kind of goes hand in hand, doesn't it? Tells us about David's character, even before he was selected by God. David had apparently had a heart for the Lord already at this point. He says, I have found David, the son of Jesse, a man after my heart, and here's, the, here's the, the, what that means, who will do all of my will. So a man after God's heart means that it's a man or a woman who does all of God's will. That's what's in their heart, to do what the Lord has commanded, to do what the Lord wants. And that's what he was interested in with David. Saul didn't do that. We've seen how Saul was in it for himself. He's trying to, in fact, as we go through the book, we're going to see that Saul was doing what every other king did, which is to protect their dynasty. If there was anybody else that might threaten their dynasty, maybe it was a relative, maybe it was a son, oftentimes they would search out to destroy and to kill. In fact, Saul tries to kill Jonathan, his own son, at one point, because he thinks Jonathan is trying to usurp the throne. Take it early. Let's not wait for Dad to die. Let's take it now. And so he sets out to kill a son. That's what every other king did. But the text tells us here that the Lord saw David, and David was a man who wanted to do all the Lord's will. That's what it meant for him to be a man after God's own heart. 1 Samuel chapter 15, 22 says, Samuel said, Has the Lord as much delight in burnt offerings and sacrifices as in obeying the voice of the Lord? Behold, to obey is better than sacrifice, and to heed than the fat of rams. What he told Saul there was, Saul, being a good king, means obedience to the Lord, doing the Lord's will. That's what it means to have a heart. We see that repeated throughout the scriptures. Hosea chapter 6, we went through that. It says, For I delight in loyalty rather than sacrifice. I I desire loyalty rather than the sacrifice. And in the knowledge of God rather than burnt offerings. Isaiah 1.11 says, What are your multiplied sacrifices to me? I have had enough of burnt offerings and rams and the fat of fed cattle. And I take no pleasure in the blood of bulls, lambs, or goats. That's the Lord rebuking Israel through Isaiah because they were so fixated on the sacrifices and performing the religious rituals that they had no heart for the Lord. 
Psalm chapter 51 says, For you do not delight in sacrifice otherwise. This is David speaking. For I do, or you do not delight in sacrifice otherwise. I would give it. If what you really desired, Lord, was to sacrifice, I would do it. You are not pleased with burnt offerings. The sacrifices of God are a broken spirit, a broken and contrite heart, O oh God. You don't despise. So David understood. He says, I'd, I'd give the sacrifices if that's all you wanted, but I recognize that that's not what you want. You are not pleased with the burnt offerings or the sacrifices. What you want is a broken spirit. Isn't that what we see in David at Nob? As I said, we'll get to that in the next few weeks where just the mere fact alone that David's like, just my presence there brought destruction to that city and I'm culpable for that. But there wasn't any sin there, but David still, because he had the heart of God. He recognized what Saul had done. When, when he sinned and Nathan came to him, he felt tremendous remorse for what he had done and confesses it properly and deals with it appropriately because he recognized at that point that he couldn't just go to the temple make a few sacrifices and everything was good. Oh, the law says that my sin requires this kind of sacrifice and I sin, so I'll go do that. I'll perform my ritual. You know, I'll show up at the temple on Saturday because that will keep God happy. That will take care of the penalty for my sin. Just like, well, I'll go to church or I'll do my prayer time or whatever else. That will fix it for me with God. God will be happy because I've done my religious rituals. You know, I grew up in a church that performs a mass, which is an Old Testament ritual, basically. You go through the motions, and every Sunday it's the same exact thing. And we do it for rote, just from memory, the same prayers. I can still go to the Catholic Church today, and I can recite all the same prayers that I grew up in. Okay, Now, I'm not saying I didn't learn anything. I'm not saying that, that the Catholics aren't saved. What I'm saying is that when you simply show up on a Sunday morning and you perform the ritual, that doesn't honor God. There's nothing there to honor God. If your heart's not in the right place, and if you're not living in obedience, and you're not honoring the Lord. And David understood that. So what did it mean for David to be a man after God's own heart? It meant that he was interested in doing all the will of the Lord. And we see that in David. You read his Psalms. You see that in... You know, there's a, there's a scene, another instance, where David almost sins, and a woman has to step in and prevent him from sinning. And you can even see in that how thankful he is because of that. We see that reflected in David throughout the whole entire scriptures where he was this man who loved the Lord and he was interested in serving the Lord even at times when he stumbled and fell and sinned. How he then responded was in a way that honored and pleased the Lord. And so I think the second theme we can take away from this is um, just this idea of the heart. It gives us a good life lesson. makes me think of how that reflects the gospel. You know, there's a reason why David in the Old Testament is a type It's a fancy theological word, for example. He's a type of Christ. He represents what we see in Christ. And isn't that really true? When we look at Jesus himself, he was the perfect, obedient son, totally dependent on his father. Jesus, when he came as a human being, gave up the exercise of certain divine rights and became totally, completely dependent on his father. And he says, I did what the father told me to do. I didn't do my will, I did my father's will. In other words, you get this picture that Jesus came as this perfect example of what it meant to live under the power of the Holy Spirit in obedience to his Father. He was sinless because his heart was to do the will of his Father. You see that even in his priestly prayer at the end of his life before, um, I mean, when when he's facing death and he says, not my will but your will, the best way to translate that, he uses two different words, is not my wishes but your will. 
In other words, at this moment, I don't particularly feel like getting nails driven into my hands and feet and going to the cross and suffering, but also being forsaken by my Father and suffering that separation from you because of bearing the weight of sin for the world. I'm not particularly looking forward to that right now. But because your will is for me to do that, then it's your will, not mine. We can understand that, can't we? Jesus was human. We can't look at him as going to the cross and going, Woo, I get to go to the cross now. There was genuine, he was sweating blood. I don't think he wanted to do that. What he wanted to do was the will of the Father. Completely. Fully. So when we look at David in this text, we see a number of things. We see God acting in his sovereignty to provide Israel something they needed, which was an example of somebody who would love them like Jesus would. He gave them, in his sovereignty, a solution to a problem they had created for themselves. Saul. He gave him David, a man after his own heart. That they might, and how the king went, oftentimes the nation went. And so this is a deliverance, this is a rescue by God in his sovereignty in spite of what Israel had done in rejecting him. And that's what God has done for us in the gospel. If we had to fix it ourselves, what would we do? Mankind is born with an innate sense that something's not right, which is why we have world religions and everybody trying to fix their relationship with a creator God of some kind or some force or something in their own way. And we come up with all these religions to do that, don't we? And God steps in and says, no. Puts his own son on the cross. A divine act to rescue us when we're pushing back and rejecting all that. Same way he did with Israel. So we see this divine act that God does to rescue Israel just like he does us with the gospel. There's a reason why David is that type or example. He's a foreshadowing of Christ. Um, Israel could look to David to know what it meant to love the Lord. We can look to Christ to know what it means to love the Lord. Is that not true? David would rescue Israel from their enemies. Jesus rescues us from our enemy. I mean, you see the parallels there. It's pretty amazing stuff. So, I'm going to go ahead and just wrap it up with that. We'll continue on in our study of this as we see, we'll see some examples of David and some other things that happen. But really, what we see in this book, again, is not so much a story of just the individuals, but how God works in those individuals. And today is a great example of that, because I think this text primarily is about God, not so much about David, but about what God desires and what God wants and what God does as it's reflected through the characters that we've seen.